Welcome to the CSL Olympia podcast. In this episode, you will hear an opening prayer, followed by a talk. You can learn more about us at our website, cslolympia.org. Blessings. Taking this deep breath, knowing that there is only one, one mind, one heart, one love, one life, that is all that there is. It is the power back behind all things, the source of all supply, that which shows up as the mundane and the sacred and the profane and wisdom and compassion and love and humility. It, all, it is all of these things which I call God, Buddha mind, Christ consciousness, the Tao, and on and on. But it is that which cannot be described, particularly by the limitations of our language. And so I rest in the fact that I see it and I feel it in everything that I come across throughout my day. It is in the quiet stillness of this season the intimacy of the ocean, the way the leaves turn and fall, and the way those microbes in the soil turn and compost those leaves so that new life may emerge, so that new embodiment of those godlike qualities can come forth. It is in all of these things. That ineffable singularity is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. It is the all in all. There is not a spot that it is not. And if this is true as it must be, then I cannot be separated from it. I am intimately intertwined with that one, with that divine presence. It is my birthright to know this, and there is nothing that I need to do to seek it out anywhere else. This is the truth of me, and this is the truth for each one here, in person or online. That they, too, are representations of God in their physical form. They don't need to seek it out anywhere else, nor could they. It is inherent within them to know this. And so it is from this awareness that I speak my word right here, right now, for this community I know that the words here today are ventilation for the perceived claustrophobia of the mundane, of the day-to-day, allowing each one to move out beyond into that greater awareness of the divine. I know that the music resonates deep within striking that chord of the divine within each one. And I know that the silence and the contemplation deepens each one into that awareness of the divine. And so I give thanks in this season of thanksgiving. I give many thanks for this opportunity to commune with the divine for this word that is spoken, for the truth that is known, for the love that is felt, and for the law that always says yes, 
that always receives and affirms, receives and affirms in this perpetual divine cycle. And so I surrender this word into that law, knowing that it is done, knowing that it was manifest before this word was even spoke. And I simply say, and so it is. So we've been working this month on a series that kind of paraphrases uh, uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, this little chant as she's walking down the, the yellow brick road, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And we're doing the mundane, the sacred, and the profane, oh my. And so we've done the mundane, we've done the sacred, guess what? Today we're doing the profane. Now the profane isn't about cuss words, okay? Sorry. If you thought I was going to act like when I was about 20 years old and, and come out with that same language and, and Kai's covering his ears, that's not going to happen. Although there is a time for, and place for strong language. Robert Ingersoll, who was a 19th century American lawyer and writer, said, I am not much given to profanity, but when I am aggravated and vexed in spirit, I declare to you that it comes as such a relief to me, such a solace to my troubled soul, and brings me such heavenly peace to every now and then allow a word or phrase to escape my lips, which can serve me no other earthly purpose, seemingly, other than to, to render emphatic my otherwise mildly expressed ideas. Did you follow that? Yeah. <laughs> more simply, a more current writer and, and uh, writing instructor, Jacqueline Patrick, says, why use profanity in real life and writing? Because sometimes darn it just doesn't cut it. But, that's, but I want to look at the original meaning of the word profane, which meant outside the temple, outside the church. It was originally used, commonly used to describe everyday life, but we kind of covered that two weeks ago in the mundane. So I want to look at it a little bit from a little bit different perspective, and that is the idea of being outside the sanctioned religious body. Because we're a spiritual center, we're going to look at the spirituality of it. We could look at the outside the, the sanctioned, and, and the word sanctioned comes from the same root as sanctify which means to be made sacred, oftentimes by an authority, by an authority figure or an authorizing body. It's the, it's the how it should be. So we could do science. See, science was profane to religion centuries ago. In some religions, it still is, yes? And some interpretations of religion. We could do this with politics. We could do this with any tribe, if you will, way of being, way of, of perceiving the world, and if it's outside of my way of perceiving the world, it's wrong. So I've been doing a, a series on the third Wednesdays, looking at the writings of the mystics in different spiritual traditions. Uh, and mystics are people who are usually operating outside the normal religion of their time, the normal spiritual community of their time, the officially sanctioned religious body. The mystic, like the artist, looks, looks at the same thing as everybody else, but sees something different. <laughs> I could also say the same is true of court jesters, certain comedians. They look at the same thing as everybody else, and they'll see something different. 
something that's outside the official or sanctioned views. And in many traditions, this has been considered a crime, with punishment that ranges from banishment from the official group to censorship to death. Yes? Virtually all spiritual traditions were begun by a person or a group with a mystical vision. And virtually all spiritual traditions were begun by a person who was profane to their own times officially sanctioned religion. Lao Tzu stood outside the dominant Confucian philosophy of his day. The Buddha was outside the traditional Hindu practices of his day. Jesus was outside the traditional Judaism of his time, and Muhammad was against the uh, polytheistic beliefs of his own tribes. Luther and Calvin were protesting against the Catholic Church of their day, and New Thought, this thing that we're part of, is separate from and, and, and outside of the traditional, especially official Christian views. So yes, you and I are profane. Yeehaw! Or as Terry said, hell yeah. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with Marty from the Dances of Universal Peace, and she shared that while she was traveling in Turkey, she was told not to identify herself as a Sufi. Sufi is the mystical branch of Islam, but in, in Turkey, or at least in the area where she was, it was illegal to be a Sufi. Now, she wasn't going to get killed or anything like that, but it was just, you know, they did not approve of that. So the vision of the founders of each of these traditions is often turned into a structured organization which is as resistant to change as the previous organization. And anyone who questions what has now become dogma is cast out or killed. So the mystics lived outside the temple. They question, they look at things differently. They don't follow the official teachings. Instead, they listen to their heart and their soul. Julian of Norwich was one such mystic. And um, the writer Mirabai Starr, in her introduction to her translations of Julian's book, The Showings, uh, which is, it talks about how her base was in the Catholic Church, which was the only spiritual tradition available to her at that time and place. And Mirabai Starr says this was the home, this, this Roman Catholic religion was the home in which the Holy One visited her. From there, he took her hand and led her out into the wild places of spirit where all mystics travel, a place that has no map and transcends all description. When we choose to be in touch with our spirit, it leads outside of the norm. You know that. Most of us have been there. Most of us are here because we've been there. The mystics live in this wild place outside the temple. Sometimes a great peril. They start saying things like, God and I are one, and they get killed. Fortunately, not all traditions are that bloodthirsty. There was a Zen monk poet named Ikkyu in the uh, 1400s who had his enlightenment at the age of 27 and at 47 was hired to run a temple. And he lasted for nine days in the temple before leaving. And he was denouncing the rampant hypocrisy of, among the monks. And because he was a poet, he took that into poetry. So he said, when I was 47, everyone came to see me. So I walked out forever. He also says a couple of other outside the temple things. 
I went, I went half crazy studying, sitting for days. Now the one thing is fishermen's songs, sunset rain clouds, the river, night after night. And one of my favorites, because when he left the temple, he tended to hang out in the bar, in the pleasure district of, of the town, in the bar, and then the whorehouse next door. So, good Zen monk, bar, whorehouse, yes? And he wrote about that in some detail, which I'm not going to read today, but he did say, don't hesitate, get laid, that's wisdom. Sitting around chanting, what crap? <laughs> now that's outside the temple, Yes? For those of us who listen, something calls us out into the wild fields beyond the temple. Beyond that temple of safe conformity. Most of us sitting in this temple left the temples of our childhood. We often wandered for years looking for a home, looking for something that resonated, looking for a community in which we felt some sense of belonging and alignment and understanding. Yet even this temple this lovely religious science teaching, can become rigid and demanding of conformity. When we, for instance, don't really want new people to feel included uh, or strangers in our home for small groups while professing that we believe everybody and everything is God. Breathe. Years ago, I heard a well-respected minister talk about uh, a ministerial uh, a minister that he was mentoring came to him and said, you know, I'm confused between reading this, the Course in Miracles and the Science of Mind textbook. So there's, there seems to be some, some differences, and I'm, I'm confused about them. And he proudly declared that he told her that the only thing she should be reading is Science of Mind books only. Mm. The original visionary, Ernest Holmes, who started this whole thing, read widely from many spiritual traditions and was open to questioning, open to exploring, open to doing all sorts of things. So that's we can get rigid in it has to be this way, wherever we are, whatever the teaching is. So the temple can be a lovely place as long as there's life, as long as there's fluidity, as long as there's flow and there's openness. But it can become a prison when fear and protectiveness and, and having to conform to our tribe's ideas of practice and departure from the original vision to create a safe, certain path becomes the new norm. When, as the Who sang, we meet the new boss, same as the old boss. When we meet the new temple, same as the old temple. True sacredness, true sacredness is flowing, changing, evolving. It is life. Because life is flowing and changing and evolving. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? Yes. It's vital aliveness itself is always finding new ways to express. And when we cut off that flow, when we settle for comfort and conformity, it's time for some profanity. It takes the strong feelings of saying no to being encased in the prison of old ideologies and old patterns that no longer serve us or the world. We see that happening in different aspects of the world where people are saying no to the way it's been. 
We're saying no to the rampant rape of the, of the planet itself. We're saying no to racism. We're saying no to genderism. We're saying no to you can't love who you want to love. And the, the, the sacred temple of society in many places is saying this is profanity, this is profane because they're challenged. And yet mystics live in truth outside the temple. They live in an expanded version of what things could be. Sometimes that move outside the temple is accompanied with high drama and strong feelings. It takes daring to look the scary monster of nonconformity in the face and say, you don't control me anymore. You know, I remember when I was 19 and, and making my escape from the Catholic Church, there was a day where my, my little sister looked at me, I remember the, we were in the car, and, she, and I, I don't remember what I said that I had done or thought or what I said, but she looked at me and she goes, you're going to hell. And I looked right back at her and I said, yes I am. <laughs> and it wasn't because I believed that there was a hell for me to go to, but it was my rebellious de- declaration that the guilt trip of fear of going to hell was, if I wasn't a good boy, whatever that was defined as, no longer ran my world. I did also use a lot of what we would call profanity back then. My, the F word was my favorite friend. No. <laughs> I know, it's just fucking shocking, you know? <laughs> Shortly after that time, I found Taoist philosophy, and it resonated with my soul. Taoism speaks, by the way, of why we have the sacred and the profane, because it says that once we call something beautiful, we automatically imply ugliness, because we can only know beauty as beauty if we know ugliness, because there is ugliness. We can only know good as good because we know evil. Yet it is important to remember, by the way, that's, that's the story from the Garden of Eden, is the, uh, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's moving out of the unitive consciousness into the perception of this and that, and then the judging it as this or that, as good or evil. Because it's important to remember that our ideas of beauty and ugliness, our ideas of good and evil, are culturally learned. They're relative. See, the Chinese associate the color white with death, not black. They associate the color red with prosperity, where we're just the opposite. If I stood up here and said, we're running in the red, if we were in in China, say, 100 years ago, before all the westernization of it, they would say, yes, yay, good. If I stand here today and say, we're running in the red, Marlisa, who's our, our bookkeeper in the back there, sits there and goes, no. Giving a thumbs up is positive in the U.S., but in other cultures, it's not. It's an obscene gesture. So we're called to hold our cultural conditioning lightly and carefully consider our labels of what we label and who we label as good and evil. Ultimately, every spiritual visionary sees love. Capital L, if you will, love. Teresa of Avila said the important thing is not to think much, but to love much, and to do whatever best awakens you to love. We're so trained in our culture to think much, aren't we? We're called to be in our hearts instead of our head. 
to love much and to do what it takes to awaken us to love. Ernest Holmes says the word love, when used to describe the nature of God, can be easily understood by everyone. For we are always responsive to love. Rich or poor, religious or non-religious, we know the word and feel an expansion within us when it is used. Believing that God acts through us, then love must act through us. So this week, for your spiritual practice, I'm going to invite you to examine what are the sanctified temples of belief that you have in your life. They may be, well, they always are internal. They may be supported externally. But what are they in your life? What are they operating in your life? And are you willing to participate in a little profanity? To move outside of that temple? To walk out into those wild places of spirit where there are no maps, place that is transcending all descriptions. Most of you are familiar with, of course, the Rumi poem of Out Beyond Ideas, Out Beyond Right Doing and Wrong Doing. There is a field, I'll meet you there. Are we willing to walk out? That's the mystical field. Are we willing to walk out into that field to let go of our absolute certainty that this is the way it has to be? I always laugh, especially at this time of year. I, 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 uh, I talk about couples who are celebrating their first Christmas together, especially if they're younger, and it's always interesting to watch the rules of how do we celebrate Christmas. Because my family does it the right way and yours doesn't do it the right way. We put up our tree on this date. We open our presents on this date. We do this tradition or this practice to celebrate Christmas. And we get to watch our little sanctified ideas of this is what Christmas means and looks like. Instead of saying, wow, what can we do? Because we're free to create whatever we want. So are we willing to go out to that place that transcends all descriptions? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to get a little profane this week. When you do, you'll find out that everybody and everything is already out in that field, whether they know it or not. I want to close with a quote from Neil Donald Walsh in his Conversations with God. He said, It has been said that if you don't see God in the profane and the profound, you're missing half the story. That is a great truth. God is in the sadness and the laughter, in the bitter and the sweet. There is a divine purpose behind everything, and therefore a divine presence in everything. In our religious science tradition, we like to emphasize that everything must be happy, happy, joy, joy sometimes. I, I don't do that but you know, so much, but that can get emphasized. I only want the things that I consider good. And yet we've all experienced things that we consider bad that five years down the road we look back on and say, no, that was good. It really helped me to get to where I am today. And so can we move out of that attachment, that addiction to everything has to work out the way that I think it should be, into I'm willing to be in a flow that allows things to move and to trust that I'm already in that flow. So we have an affirmation. So join me in this. I see God in the sacred and the profane. All is one. And one more time. I see God in the sacred and the profane. All is one. <clears throat>